The guests on Love Hurts occasionally use some adult language and go into some more intense subject matter, but that's kind of how real life works anyway. This is Love Hurts. I'm Brian Berlin. Today's guest is Peter Laughter. Peter is a storyteller living in Brooklyn. Growing up, Peter found a role model through the Big Brother program. Over the years, their relationship turned into a true brotherhood, and Peter shares the story of what it meant to have him in his life, and then what it was like to lose him. Hey, Peter, how's it going? It's going great. It's going really good. Cool. Thank you so much for being here in your space futuristic soundproof room you got there. <laughs> it it kind of has a, uh, yeah, a, a, just a horrible nightmarish feel to it. It but, feels uh, like, yeah, it it's, 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 too, it's too quiet where you can hear your thoughts just a little yeah. too, too much if you're in there for too long. Yeah, but something okay. comforting about being a padded room finally. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining and coming on to share a story. Uh, yeah, what did you want to talk about today? So this is a story about me and my brother. And um, I'll never forget when the taxi cab pulled up in front of my house. It was two in the morning and I reached through the little plastic divider to give the driver a 20. And he turned around and he put his hand on mine and said, there's no, no charge for you tonight. And it was just this moment of generosity and humanity that I needed and I just my my sobbing just increased exponentially at that point and I could barely make it out of the car about five or ten minutes before that I had been in the car for a bit and I had begun to cry and the driver stopped at a red light turned and said why is it that you're weeping and I said well my brother has just died and it was probably one of the worst days of my life up to that point. And the weird thing about it was this, this man, my brother, we didn't have the same parents. We didn't grow up together. I met him when he was in his mid-twenties and I was nine and we were matched together by big brothers, uh, big sisters of America. And over the years, our relationship had grown to the point where that artificial introduction had gone away and we were left with brotherhood and he had become my brother and this is the story of how that happened wow yeah i mean i'm already i'm already drawn in i want to know i want to know what happened i'm also curious what city were you in with this cab drive i feel like this says a lot about like cab drivers and cities. This like, was where... this was Manhattan. Yeah. This was, okay. This, this yeah. Was... I was like, this feels like kind of a New York moment where yeah, this moment of humanity where you know where people are just like crying on the subway, right? Like I feel like those moments that happen where somebody just notices you in the city of a lot of people, and that has this extra kind of profound moment to just be like seen in that moment where you feel very, yeah, kind of like small and invisible almost to the world. It was so needed. Like I was, yeah, I in that moment had felt so alone. And just that acknowledgement of the pain I was going through was, was, yeah, I'm so grateful for and it. And at that moment, I mean, I don't want to get like too, if you're going to get to this, I could, we could skip over it for now. But like in that moment, like, is that you had just found out about this news in the uh, taxi no, car or just before the taxi I, car? 
I was in the hospital with my brother oh, okay. at, yeah. after they took him off life support and waiting just a vigil for him to, to pass. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. You, you like had literally just been in this moment to have yeah. your, to lose your brother and then getting yeah. in his taxi cab, man. Yeah. That's a, that's an intense moment. Um, so yeah, you said you wanted to go back to where this whole kind of story began between the two of you and what, uh, what's his name too? Ed. Ed Stancic. Ed. Yeah. So Ed and I, my uh, my dad left when I was very young, and I had really, you know, uh, no relationship whatsoever. And my mom, being my mom, wanted to, me to have a positive male influence. And when I was younger, had always thrown male babysitters my way, and knowing that that was something that I needed. And then she brought me to Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I was matched with this gangly. Uh, assistant district attorney, you know, who um, seemed like a nice enough guy. And uh, he, our first gathering, we went to McDonald's and he had very little experience with children. So <laughs> he, yeah, because I was so much shorter than him, he couldn't hear anything I was saying as we were walking. You know, he kept having to like kind of walk, you know, bent over. And uh, he, you know, took me to uh, McDonald's and yeah, he was not at a stage in his life where he had gone to McDonald's and was wholly unaccustomed to the, uh, you know, the, the, just, you know, the gastrointestinal tornado that was caused by a Big Mac. And halfway through a meal, he had to jump up and run into the, the men's room, as you do <laughs> when you go to McDonald's. And as he's coming back from the bathroom and he looks at the booth where we were sitting and goes into a blind panic because I'm not there um, and thinking like, oh, my God, I've just met this kid. His mother's going to freaking kill me. Yeah, it's been like 20 minutes and I've lost him already. But the thing is, I was too short to have my head come over the top of the booth. And so he, he rushes back to the booth with this look of panic inside. I'm just mounting on a big neck going, what? <laughs> And what is your, like, what is your first impression of it? Like, is this your first time, like, doing the Big Brother, Big Sister program? Like, your first person you're meeting? Like, what is your kind of impression of this whole it kind of moment? Definitely the first uh, person um, uh, that I had met through Big Brothers. And it was kind of like, oh, this is just some stupid thing that my mom wants me to do because Yeah, she like, this feels is just another male babysitter that she's it's hoping that I, like, connect with in some way. And, you know, I was nine at this point in New York City and, you know, in, you know, this is, you know, 19, you know, early, you know, 1980s. So I was, you know, there was no parenting whatsoever. So, <laughs> I mean, the idea that I needed a babysitter was ludicrous. But then I figured out that he was going to uh, take me to do things. And I got really excited uh, because I desperately wanted to see uh, an R-rated movie <laughs> called take this job and shove it. And I don't know why it was just so appealing to me. Uh, it probably, you know, uh, I've literally never heard of this movie. <laughs> it's, it's probably good. It was horrible, but it was rated R and it, it, it had what to a nine year old seemed like our title that said, take this job and shove it. That was like what I wanted to tell everyone. Yeah. So it was like my teachers, All those nine year old jobs. Everybody. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah, I guess yeah it's, like, a good, well, it's a good metaphor yeah, for life. Yeah. 
And um, and I was always in trouble. So that just it seemed like it was a movie made for me. Yes. Um, okay. And the fact that I can remember nothing about what happened says something about how good it was. But I was excited. I was like, maybe I could dupe this guy into. Yeah. Taking so me. so it's this nice thing where you're like, oh, I don't have to sit in my house and like try to bond with this random high school kid. We actually get to go out and do things. And that's yep. fun. Yeah. 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 And and we would do things. And our relationship really consists of going to see really bad movies and uh, and playing video games, going to the arcade and, and playing video games. And, you know, we'd go to the occasional ball game or, you know, we'd go, you know, play catch and, you know, the park or things like that. But it was, yeah, as as he would later describe our relationship, you know, in the beginning, it was pretty much video games. And then for a brief period, it was video games and talking about girls. And it's been pretty much talking about girls ever since and that was yeah carried me through my high school years uh, which is not at all true but uh it was uh uh it was uh, a really good synopsis of, yeah of uh, my young relationship well it's like it brother. seems like yeah it seems like you kind of broke that surface level of like oh we're just bonding over like guy things or whatever or just like activities to let's actually talk about feeling like there's something else that we're bonding over than like let's just play a video game together well, and I think it was the repetition, right, of all of those just stu- doing stuff together. I remember I had, um, you know, this is early 80s, so the level of abuse that public school teachers were allowed to inflict on their students was pretty high. And uh, I had one teacher uh, who was terrifying, and I was so scared of her. And and Ed became the only person I could really talk about how terrified I was of this teacher. And he, and, and I think that's one of the things I remember, he lived on uh, Roosevelt Island at the time, and I remember just walking uh, along and talking about this, this teacher and how scared I was and how much I hated her. And it's funny, I look back at that teacher and I realize she was actually one of the best teachers I've ever had because she really pushed me in ways that I needed to be pushed at that age. And um, I think it was really through my brother's listening and non-judgmental attitude that allowed me to see something bigger in her and myself. And I think that was the moment where, where we started to become more than just that. And you mentioned like Ed being kind of what, like in his early twenties and he's uh, has this lawyer job or district assistant district attorney job. Like what do you know, like at that point, like why he was like, this is something I want to do with my life right now. That came later. And he, um, he was really, uh, so Ed was, uh, to this day is still the best man I've ever known. It was just a, a wonderful human being. And he, uh, um, became a lawyer because that's just what he, you know, thought he should do. Uh, and, uh, and then became a prosecutor because he realized that, uh, is what would really help people. And so he was, um, doing, uh, drug related homicide. And, uh, he told me a story of a case he was working on where, and, um, it was around the time where a model, uh, a white woman was was murdered, and there was huge media attention and police attention. And he was uh, working on the murder of uh, a woman in a similar situation and age bracket, but who was very poor, um, a woman of color. And he knew that it was his responsibility to make sure that her family had some sense of justice. 
and he talked about uh, the importance of that um, to me and um, and I we would have a lot of conversations about morality as I grew up and it was when I look back at how I form my own sense of morality a lot of it came from those conversations um, I remember um, Lyndon B. Johnson, I kind of idolized. I just thought he was, you know, this uh, amazing, tough guy president who did the right thing. And uh, there was, uh, they released his audio uh, tapes at one point, and there was, uh, and I'm forgetting the the name who was of the guy who was leading um, um, uh, uh, um, the commission on on who killed JFK. And but the guy is saying like, look, Mr. President, I, I really don't want to do this. And LBJ said, yeah, I'm the president, God damn it, and I'm not asking you, and I'm telling you. And yeah, it was just it was like your country needs you to do this. And I was like, yes, that's that's what a president needs to look like. And then some bit came out about him, LBJ, trying to figure out about what to do about Vietnam, and was really heartbroken because he felt that he would get impeached if he didn't go forward with it. And I said something, well, I guess he didn't have a chance. And my brother said, well, I knew a lot of people who went to Vietnam and, and didn't come back. And it was the, and, and maybe the right thing to do would have been impe be impeached. And uh, I'll never forget that moment you know, where I realized, oh, doing the right thing doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. And, and he pretty consistently did that. He later became the uh, deputy chief of the Rackets Bureau doing uh, mafia and political corruption cases. And he was really good at turning witnesses. And I asked him how he did it. And he said, well, the truth is, is I really believe it's the right thing for them to do. And he did. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, and that's, I mean, it seems like such a, yeah, just like very kind of moral centered man, I guess. But like, then for you to also get paired with this guy at a time where, yeah, you said you didn't have a dad in your life growing up and kind of the influence that then brings on you at that age has got to be like cute. You know, it seems, it seems like it's very instrumental in becoming the person you are today. And he was always there. He was always there. He, you know, and I, I'm dyslexic. So, you know, you know, junior high and high school in the uh, you know in the 80s was they just did not have the capability of, of, of dealing with different learners and it was really really hard and a lot of adults interacted with me as if I was stupid and he never did he never did he always listened to me and you know took me seriously and I uh, remember at my uh, high school graduation all of the uh, some of the graduates had a chance to speak uh, I was far from valedictorian <laughs> but um, and I spoke and I talked about the importance of my family and I talked about my brother. And when he was in the audience, he uh, heard that and said, huh, he didn't say big brother, he said brother. And that was the moment years later he told me where he realized that we were brothers. And just four or five days later, he took me on a fly fishing trip for my graduation present. And I remember we were driving up to Adirondacks and we stopped at a friend's house and he had gotten a couple beers. And uh, when we were there, he said, look, I know it's not your first, but it's your first with me. And he handed me a beer and we had a, a, a beer together. And uh, and then we went off to this fishing trip where we were camping and, and fly fishing. And um, 
I remember that first day, he caught a fish and I caught a fish. And right before we were finishing, he caught another fish. And I was just insane <laughs> with jealousy. And I mean, it was it was late at this point. I mean, the sun was going down. It was dark. And he was packing up the car. Um, and we were at this bend in the road where the river was. And I insisted on staying in the river, trying to catch another fish in the dark. I couldn't see anything. And uh, it was fly fishing. So I'm whipping this, you know, this fly rod and, uh, you know, trying to get uh, a fish. And every once in a while, you know, the, the fly is wishing by me and, and, and banging into the guardrail behind me like so i'm hearing this whoosh, ding, whoosh, ding, whoosh, ding, you know just constantly and every once in a while the hook the 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 fly would get caught in the guardrail and i would fall back and but yet i'm still you know doing it and um and you know what i caught a fish and so <laughs> and that night we went and we made a fire and we cooked our fish in the dark and yeah you know, we had this great dinner and he brought out uh these two bottles of french wine um that he had and i had never had wine before I tasted it but I yeah and I had this idea at 18 years old that an adult could drink an entire bottle of wine and not be drunk like I thought that that was <laughs> that was what being an adult that you have this tolerance and and uh, which I now know is not at all true and particularly like you know a glass and a half gets me pretty tipsy um, at this point in time but uh, yeah I was just wrecked <laughs> so you each, you each have your own bottle and you just get like we we had we had one bottle and then we oh he opened up another and uh, I, I, but I was desperately trying to pretend I was sober, <laughs> just like because I didn't want it to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it was it was such a great trip. And on we we're driving back, and I'll I'll never forget the yeah it was this Chrysler LeBaron with this like pleather colored covered uh, radio dials and this you know little you know, LED radio and. Uh, I remember looking at that as this long drive from the Adirondacks, and my brother had seen a a, a woodchuck on the drive, and he thought it was a beaver. I mean, he was from Chicago. What did he know about beavers? But uh, uh, I mean, it was obviously a woodchuck because there was no beaver dam. Yeah, and but he kept insisting it was a beaver, and we argued. It I must have been like an hour and a half about yeah, whether or not this was a woodchuck or a beaver, uh, and we came to no resolution. But at the end of it, when we just finally decided to give up, I realized that wait a second, only brothers could share this argument and be so committed to being right about this and I re and that was the moment just five days after he had the same realization I was like holy crap this is my brother and that was really the point uh, for me and we didn't discover this till years later that uh, uh, we both had the same realization um, but uh, he really became my go-to person uh, when I came home from colleges, I would stay with him more often, yeah, you know, than my mom. And uh, I, whenever I was in trouble, I remember my best friend was pregnant, and uh, um, uh, and her, her and her boyfriend were trying to figure out what to do. And he was my first. He was the person I called for advice. Um, and um, uh, he just he would always come to visit me. I. Uh, I you know, lived in Mexico for six months and he came to visit me for a week and we traveled around Mexico together. And he had um, 
at that time gotten a job as the special commissioner of investigation investigating the board of ed for fraud and corruption and his career was taking off and uh, uh, he was on the news all the time and we would uh, we would go out uh, and people would stop him on the street and thank him and I was just so so proud and uh, I remember we were out one night and the New York Times did a, a piece on him and uh, we were, uh, he had taken me out to uh, a bar and uh, we were coming back and just as the Sunday Times was released and so it was about two in the morning and we're out there in front of a bodega reading this piece and it, uh, it comes to a part about me and says, oh, Mr. Stancic has been shepherding a fatherless child through high school and we just laughed at that idea yeah and it <laughs> oh, was they just really so, leaned uh, into this fat like, oh, like they, you yeah. were this borderline orphan that needed some help like really needed <laughs> which which was absolutely true yeah but yeah, we but the just way they... found it to be so <laughs> funny and uh it just and i remember just laughing with him and that 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 shepherding joke really like it was just a constant thing for us yeah um but the thing is it was true he really did shepherd me into adulthood um yeah and it feels and, like kind of that yeah. that college moment or the high school graduation into college moment was kind of the the shifting of that da dynamic from like oh i'm and i'm sure in high school you were not like feeling taken care of by him but that moment where it's like oh we're at an equal footing now versus like i yeah that, like this adulthood kind of moment of things where like yeah him giving you the beer you having these moments together you're really starting to transition into like yeah, when I guess it's like when I like I have sisters and I feel like, yeah, when we got past college, that's when I started seeing them as like friends versus like siblings, you know, and I feel like it seems like you had a similar kind of experience with Ed. It, and our relationship really, really transitioned very powerfully at that point. And we, we really became, you know, best friends and we would, yeah, travel together. He had um, uh, uh, gotten sick. Um, he had a, a heart um a really bad heart murmur that was undiagnosed for a long time and it really wrecked his body and had to have um, open heart surgery to replace the valve and I was there with him the whole time and uh, yeah we were we were we were we relied on each other when he needed to figure something out he would reach out to me and uh, and the same thing I really would not make an important decision without him I um, had a, a home invasion in uh, my, my late 20s and uh, it was bad and he was the first person I called in the middle of the night and he was there like almost almost before the police came and he yeah just you know it was you know and he was and I was that for him you know he needed uh, after his surgery he was not in good shape and he would call me and I would jump in a cab and go to the 24-hour drugstore to get him bandages or whatever he need and go to his place in Manhattan from where I lived in Brooklyn and um, we were just we were we were there together his he was in love with a woman and uh, um, I found out that uh, his best friend had betrayed him and was dating this woman that he was in love with. Uh, and I was the one who told my brother. And I remember, yeah, I, I found I was in, I had gone to see his friend to get his advice on some, some work things and uh, discovered that they were together there. And I realized that this guy is, is, is using me to tell my brother this thing that he had done. And I remember getting off the airplane and calling him and saying, hey, are you home? Because we need to talk right now. And going to his house and saying, 
yeah, what had happened. And yeah, as much as I hated giving him that news, I was so glad that he could hear it from me rather than some rando or you know, or when he wasn't prepared to hear. Yeah, it. finding yeah, finding out a scenario where yeah, it's it's not yeah, not not ideal. Which I guess it's never ideal in that scenario. But at least yeah, you you had the the intimacy with him to be able to like I could I could tell you this and it sucks, but I'm here for you. And uh, when I was tr- I decided to ask my wife to marry me. I uh, took him out to dinner and I said, I need you to find a way to talk me out of this. Because he was the <laughs> one who I would test decision-making with. And uh, uh, he couldn't come up with a reason. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm doing my, I'm trying to help you from avoiding this thing you're probably a little scared of, but it seems like maybe it's the right thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, and he was the best man at my wedding, and he had been that um, the uh, the the heart valve uh, replacement didn't take; it was botched, and uh, it was leaking uh, almost as badly as the uh, um, uh, as the heart murmur was, and he had to have it replaced. But his body had been so wrecked; it was just so hard on him the second time. And he was so weak and gaunt uh, at my wedding. And he gave the speech and he referenced that article and he talked about how he had shepherded me through and that he was passing on this uh, metaphorical crook uh, to my wife uh, now that it was her responsibility. And uh, not uh, you know, six months later, I got a call from him saying that he checked back into the hospital because he was having difficulty eating because the fluid in his uh, in his chest was so great it was putting chest pressure on his stomach and um, he had a feeding tube inserted but he was um, in the hospital for several weeks and he got a uh, uh, an infection that went into his blood and he went into a coma and uh, I um, he hadn't told his parents he was in the hospital because he didn't want to worry them and he thought and he had been he had gotten sick and it looked like it was getting bad, but then it would bounce back. And we all thought that everything was going to be fine. And when his doctor called, I thought it was just to give me some routine information. And he said, he's in a coma and you need to come. And uh, I did. And um, he was non-responsive in an ICU unit. I had to tell his parents, who were very old at that point and were so confused. They just didn't understand. I thought he was just fine. What do you mean? And they came back. um, They came to New York from Chicago, where they lived. And I stayed with them. um, And they kept him on life support for a long time. And I remember the nurses who I knew were really clear that there was no chance. But they just couldn't let go. And who was I to tell them? And is that a moment where you're kind of feeling this, like, you you want to be the person there for, like, it's like his parents obviously kind of have, I guess, final say in this scenario, but are you kind of having this, like, I I want to do what's best for him and I kind of have an idea of what's best for him, but I can't make that it decision? It was really hard. It was really hard. Yeah. that uh, It was very clear that he was gone. And I, uh, I mean, I there were some real significant signs to me. Um, and to the nurses that there was no way. His hands 
the life support that he was on was really focusing on his vitals, and it really took uh, blood away from his extremities, and his fingers started to wither as a result. And so, so his parents wouldn't be freaked out. We, the nurse, told me to get gloves from his house um, so they wouldn't see it. Um, but it was just, it was horrible. Um, um, and uh, it was really, really hard to see, but and I had no power. Um, and I remember just every day, you know, for three months I had come, you know, right to his house, uh, to his, to his, um, uh, to his uh, hospital room every day after work I was there. And uh, I remember I took a break one Saturday and I, it was uh, Lord of the Rings, first movie, had come, and I, um, I'm a nerd, you know, but uh, so I loved those books growing up, and I remember just bawling throughout the movie. Not that it was at all a sad movie, but I was just so sad, and I was so touched by how well it was taken care of. And um, um, finally, when his parents decided to take him off life support, it was you know you have this image of pulling the plug, but it was. Yeah, it was nothing like that, and it was a vigil that happened around seven and uh, yeah in the evening, and he didn't die till uh, around two in the morning, and I remember just sitting there by his bedside, and when the heart rate monitor went flat, it was almost instantaneously all the color disappeared from his skin, and he was gone, and I was heartbroken. And it would like I had I had lost my best friend. Who would I go to when I needed advice? Who who would help me when I was in trouble? Um, who who would be my best friend? And um, since then, I've realized that I loved him, and he loved me. And in doing so, I became part of him, and he became part of me. And I learned that this man who had no blood relation to me, had no responsibility to me, who just randomly met me, who chose to have a relationship with me, became my family. And that he would always, always be with me. And I am who I am because of him. And because of that, I will never be alone again. And for that, I am so grateful. Yeah. I mean, that's so, so beautiful. And I, I mean, it feels... You, you kind of just said, like, I am who I am because of him. And I was kind of thinking to myself the same exact thing. Like, the amount of times he was there for you growing up and kind of, like, influenced the person you are today just seems like so, you know, I've never met this person, but I could already, already tell, like, yeah, he was a huge influence on, yeah, just the person. And I don't, we don't know each other that well, but I'm already like, oh, yeah, I could, I, like, I could tell the type of person you are. And it feels very, like, much like it's echoes of this person you're describing to me, so... I do think you are, yeah, carrying on kind of what he instilled in you. And I was so lucky, really, to have him. And uh, my, my daughter is named after him, actually. So uh, a girl named Eddie, but that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, uh, man, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all that. I know it's a really, you know, kind of the big, kind of probably the big story of your life, you know. and really is. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing all of it. And it was really great to hear about Ed and uh, how important he was to you. Um, yeah, th thank you again so much for sharing. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be able to tell uh, the story of, of my love for him. 
Yeah. Um, and it, I know, like, I know you do some storytelling stuff and you might have some other stuff going on in your life. Like if people want to find out more about what you do, uh, is, do you have like a website or an Instagram, Twitter, like anywhere that people can go and follow you? Yeah, I, um, yeah, strangely enough, I uh, stopped uh, as soon as I found out that uh, Mark Zuckerberg was, uh, you know, giving the police uh, oh, yeah, yeah. information oh, on, yeah, on uh, teenage girls. I stopped. Uh, I was like, no more, no, done. Uh-uh. That's fair. Um, so, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, I realized that just Twitter was turning me into a horrible person. So, I was just, <laughs> so you're off the grid. I, well, I do LinkedIn, LinkedIn, okay. so li- LinkedIn backslash P- uh, Peter Laughter. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Well, yeah, I no, it was great. It was great to have you on, and I'm glad you know I got to hear a little bit more about your life and um, the important, the very important person in your life. Thank you. This is how we love. This is how we. Love Hurts is produced, hosted, and edited by Brian Berlin. Theme music by Mickey Hommel. Show art by Caroline Mallon. You can find Love Hurts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about it. You can find Love Hurts on Twitter and Instagram at lovehurtspod, and our website is lovehurtspod.com. I'm Brian Berlin. And this is Love Hurts.